Won't you pray with me as we begin? Lord Jesus, we humble ourselves before you this morning, recognizing our sinfulness and our need for you. We also recognize your grace in dying for that sinfulness, and we thank you for the forgiveness that you've offered us. And pray, Lord, as we look at your scripture this morning, that you would open our hearts, help us to understand, help us to receive it, help us to apply it. We thank you for this opportunity that we have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Several weeks ago, my son Hank and I were sitting at the kitchen table, and we were discussing his baseball future. That's what we do in our house, and so we talk a lot about baseball. Some of you are tired of that, but anyway... We were talking about where he might go to high school and where he wanted to go to college, and he, he made a verbal commitment at that point to the University of Florida, of all places. And I said, I said, Florida? Why the University of Florida? And he said, well, they're the best. Last year, they were ranked number one for much of the year in NCAA baseball, and so he said, I want to go to Florida. And I said, well, okay. So... As many of you know, we had a vacation a couple of weeks ago that took us to Florida, and we traveled right through Gainesville. Now, I know for some Kentucky fans, that's, that's, you know, that's off limits and all that stuff, but I don't happen to be a Kentucky fan, so I have no problem whatsoever with stopping in Gainesville. I don't close my eyes. I don't drive faster you know, just to avoid it. I, we stopped, and we, we went to the baseball field at the University of Florida. Now, theirs is more like a stadium than it is a field, and so... We, we, we didn't expect really to see anybody, but we walked up down the left field line. There was a gate for service vehicles and things to go on and off the field, and we walked there and stood on the warning track, and I took Hank's picture a couple of times there, and, you know, just in case he does make it to the University of Florida at some point. I say, hey, you know, we, we were already there. And it was a really neat experience. We, one of the coaches motioned for us and gave Hank a baseball and all that kind of stuff, and and it's interesting, though, I mean, that's what he's got his mind set on, provided, he says, he doesn't get drafted and sign out of high school. <laughs> and he, he's dead serious. Now, I'll tell you how serious he is about, about that. The Cincinnati Reds, of course, it's been a, a week of, of mourning in our home, and, uh, and, and then just the Cardinals coming back. I mean, it's just it's salt on the wound. But anyway... But, but he's figured out that Joey Votto, the first baseman for the Cincinnati Reds, who is his favorite player, he has uh, now 12 years remaining with the Reds on his contract. Hank has figured out that if he gets drafted out of high school and goes directly to the big leagues, he'll play with Votto for two years. That, that's the last two years of that contract. He's got a plan for what he wants to become. And you know, the truth be told, that whether it's in baseball and we joke about those things, but a vision for the future really does take you a long way. If you can see what it is that you think or you know that you are to become, that God wants you to be, it can take you a long way. I wonder how often you pause to consider who you want to be in five years, ten years, twenty years, however long the Lord allows you to live. Who do you want to be? What, what do you want to be about? How do you want to be seen at the end of that time period? What kind of personality do you want to have? What do you want your family to look like? What kind of things do you want to be good at or known for? And how are you going to accomplish all that? I'm sure there are moments when you stop and you think, you know, I, I tell you, I'd like to do this or that. 
But I wonder really, do we consider what will it take for us to get there to that preferred future, that vision that we might have? How will you get there with more than just good intentions? I wonder, as we look at the scripture this morning, and we will see sort of this ideal person that we all should and and hopefully want to become, we'll see how we can get there. So turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is right after Proverbs in the Old Testament. If you don't know the Bible very well, don't let that stop you. Please bring a Bible with you, and if you don't have one, let us know. We'd be happy to give you one. And and if you don't know the Bible well, that's no problem. Go to the table of contents. Look for Ecclesiastes. Starts with an E-C-C, Ecclesiastes over in the Old Testament. We're in a series called Chasing the Wind, which is essentially what the book of Ecclesiastes is about, that apart from a relationship with God himself, that all of us are simply chasing the wind. And even if we catch it, we have nothing in our fingers but the wind. So he's holding up for us, here's a godless view of life. You can pursue all these things that he describes in this book, and all you'll wind up with is holding the wind, because you really, that's all you get. And, and then at the end, we get the idea that, that truly, if you want to hold on to life, if you want life to matter, then it all begins with a relationship with the Lord. So last week, we talked about and we determined that we don't need money and stuff to be in charge of our lives. And there's a fine line there because we have to have money and stuff in life, but we don't want it to be on the throne of our lives. And so that was last week. And now, with the teacher here in this book, Uh, your version may say the preacher, he's going to turn and give us some very good advice, some words to live by for those who don't want to be ruled by money and stuff. He said, I don't want that to be my life. Those who want a different approach to life. Now in chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes, the first 14 verses, we're going to get some Proverbs. We're going to get some words to live by. So look at it with me, beginning in verse 1. A good name is better than fine perfume. In the day of one's death, than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, since that is the end of all mankind, and the living should take it to heart. Grief is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be glad. The heart of the wise is in a house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in a house of pleasure. It is better to listen to rebuke from a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. For like the crackling of burning thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This too is futile. Surely the practice of extortion turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe destroys the mind. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. A patient spirit is better than a proud spirit. Don't let your spirit rush to be angry, for anger abides in the heart of fools. Don't say, why were the former days better than these? For it is not wise of you to ask this. Wisdom is as good as an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection as money is protection. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of its owner. Consider the work of God. For who can straighten out what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider without question. God has made the one as well as the other so that man cannot discover anything that will come after him. Thinking about this desired future, the person that you want to be over however many years of your life, I believe we get some great words to live by. So here's here's what I hope to do in this particular sermon. I want to look at each piece of advice. There's several different things here that he throws at us. 
I want to look at what they mean. There's a little bit of confusing language that can be in here. What is, what is he saying? And then what would it be like if we lived our lives this way? So my goal is for you to get a glimpse of what your life could be if you abide by these principles in a, in a deep and ongoing relationship with the Lord. Imagine, uh, during each little piece that we'll look at here, I want you to imagine being this kind of person, being this kind of spouse, this kind of parent or worker or friend or teammate or, or whatever it may be. I want you to imagine raising the kinds of children that would abide by these principles. I want us to imagine together having the kind of church that would be founded upon these kinds of things. I want us to imagine living in a community, Murray and Callaway County, that's full of these kinds of people that we'll see. And I also want to leave you knowing that, that you must trust Jesus Christ completely in order to get there. So let's look at verse 1. We're going to just break this down into the pieces of advice that he gives us. Verse 1 says this, A good name is better than fine perfume. What he's talking about here, if you think about the figurative language, he's talking about a person's reputation versus some outward fragrance that they might try to show in order to cover up who they really are. It's reputation that's based upon their inner character and not trying to cover up like you would with a perfume. When I was in high school playing baseball, there were times when I would come in uniform to church. Now, for some, that may freak you out, but, but I, I came on Wednesday nights largely in uniform because we would play a game, and I would show up to church to be, to be there at the service in uniform. And inevitably, in my car, there would be a bottle of cologne. Why? Because after a ball game, you don't exactly smell the greatest. So I would douse myself with all this cologne trying to cover up the fact that I stink. You know what? It just kind of made it worse. It didn't really work. So now you got sweaty cologne smell. That's no good at all. But that's what he's talking about. Often what we do is we try to cover up who we really are with some show of what we think might be appealing to other people. And he's saying a good name, this inward character that builds a great reputation is better than anything you can sprinkle on yourself to make things appear that you've got it all together. Because even a great perfume cannot cover up the stench of poor character and bad reputation. And a good name is to be desired over all those things. So I want you to imagine what it would be like if you find yourself saying, you know what, I'm really covering up more than I, I really am of great character. Imagine what it would be like to be that kind of person who has deep inner character, whose reputation precedes you in a good way, who doesn't have to worry about sprinkling perfume on yourself to cover up the stench of what really is there. Imagine being that kind of spouse. Imagine being that kind of parent or worker or teammate or friend or student. This is the person who has different goals from everyone else. You want to be this kind of person that pursues character over outward appearance? You're going to be very, very different from most people. Because your motives and your goals and your lifestyle are going to be different. Your perspective on life. You're not going to chase after all the same things that everyone else goes after. Why? Because you're worried about building your character, not just putting on a show. And it is so easy, I'll tell you this, and I know from experience, and you could probably say the same thing, it is so easy to get it backward. It is so easy to put on a front. It's so easy to fake it because most people don't really know you. It's so easy to pursue this perfume smell. That I at least look good and I at least appear to be something to someone else. 
and it's harder to have your inner character developed because it requires a different set of concerns and priorities. But maybe today you'd say, you know what, I really do want to be a person who is more concerned with my inner character than my outward performance and perception. Imagine, if, if we can imagine together, we take this from a church level, imagine being the kind of church that, that's concerned with deeper issues like making disciples and spiritual maturity than whether the building is full and the bills are paid. That's the perfume. The inner character is are we making disciples? That's verse 1. The end of verse 1, he says, after saying that a good name is better than that great perfume, and he says, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, since that is the end of all mankind, and the living should take it to heart. He goes on, grief is better than laughter, for when, the face, when a face is sad, a heart may be glad. The heart of the wise is in a house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in a house of pleasure. Now, what's he saying? He's essentially telling us that we should look death squarely in the eyes and let it do its work in us. That doesn't mean we should long necessarily for death or try to pursue an early death, but he's saying you need to come to grips with the reality that one out of every one of us will die, and we've got to let that do its work in us in order to produce the kind of wise people that God wants us to be. He says the living should take it to heart. The day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth, he says. What is he saying there? We should learn from the reality of death and adjust our lives accordingly. You think about the birth of a child. There is nothing on that day that reminds you of death whatsoever, provided the child is healthy and is able to survive. There is just celebration. I've been blessed four times over to be able to celebrate that in the delivery room, the birth of a child. I'm not thinking about the brevity of their lives. I'm not thinking about the one day that they will die. I'm not thinking about that on the day of their birth. I'm just celebrating. Praise God that he's blessed us with a child. That's, that's what we do on the day of a birth. But every funeral you attend anticipates your own. Every one. Every funeral that you attend. Every funeral service that I perform anticipates the fact that one day someone will perform my funeral. Considering death requires that we now take life seriously. Because the truth is, what the teacher is saying here, you can learn more about life at a funeral than at a frat house or a buffet restaurant, the house of pleasure. You can learn more and gain greater perspective by attending a funeral or going to a funeral home than at those places. Because at the funeral home, the mood is thoughtful and reflective. And people begin to see, wait a minute, one day I will wind up just like that. We get sobered up at the funeral home to some degree. We don't like to think about it. It's really more fun to go on as, as just having a party in life, uh, something just to be merely enjoyed, than to think about our mortality. This isn't fun to think about. I'm not stupid. I know that. Most of us would rather attend a birthday party than a funeral. <laughs> we're, we're in our right mind. We would say, you know, I'd, I'd really not like to deal with death today. You know, we, we, that's the way we think. I'd rather go to a birthday party and celebrate. There's, there's hardly anybody that I know, in fact, no one that I know, that just gets excited about going to the funeral home. I can't think of anybody who does. But what the teacher is saying is that there is clearly more to be learned at the funeral, and that has greater value for us. The sorrow we experience there can do more for us than the laughter at a party can bring. So this is not, just, just to bring balance, not about being preoccupied with death 
and some fatalistic way of living, and oh, I'm going to die, and you start freaking out, and you get all anxious and nervous, and now you shut down, and you can't live anymore. That's not what he's talking about. But it's about living wisely because of the reality of death. So imagine, picture yourself as that kind of person. Picture yourself as that kind of spouse or parent or worker or teammate or friend. The person who who stares death in the face, maybe attending a funeral or, or a funeral home visit, and you're changed by it. Not that you just shake hands and say, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss, and you move on numb to the fact that one day you'll be right there, but let it change you. No longer lulled to sleep, no longer going through the motions as if you'll be here forever. I wonder how different our lives would be if the reality of death guided our daily lives. I got a feeling that we would live a little more in the moment, but not living in the moment just to enjoy the moment, though that may come, but living in the moment to make it count. We'd probably have less worry. Some of the things we get so worked up about, we'd probably say, you know what? If I found out I were dying, I probably wouldn't care about that. We'd probably have less worry. We'd probably have more impact on people. Why? Because you get one shot at life. We would probably have fewer wasted days and fewer wasted opportunities, and we'd probably have greater boldness in our Christian faith. And what if the reality of death guided what we did as a church, recognizing that people are going to die, and we have a limited amount of time to impact them for all eternity? I got a feeling that would get us even more on board with God's purposes, to reach people far from Jesus, to make disciples, to truly worship the Lord, to have an outward focus, to do whatever it takes, not about us, but about doing what God has called us to do. Imagine yourself as that kind of person. Imagine our church as that kind of place. And he goes on, verse 5. He says, It is better to listen to rebuke from a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. For like the crackling of burning thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This too is futile. So he continues to talk about wise living by describing the two options that we have when it comes to receiving instruction. Now, you've probably heard people talk before that you said, man, they are incredibly wise. And you've probably heard people talk and say, that person is crazy. They're a fool. They have no idea what they're talking about. They think they do. They want to tell everybody how much they think they know, but that person is a fool. And that's kind of the scenario that he sets up here. One person, he says, you can receive instruction from is the wise person. The problem with receiving that instruction, though, is it may come in the form of a rebuke, a correction. Some of you probably remember times when your parents have rebuked you and corrected you. And I'm sure that just a couple of us in here didn't like that too much. Not many, of course, but a couple at least probably didn't like that too much. The rebuke came from someone and it hurt because it called out what was really going on. And that rebuke is often the one that we want to avoid it hurts. But it's more valuable, the teacher says, and proves to be more helpful in our lives than if we listen to the song of fools, poetry, for that catchy kind of advice that meets what our ears want to hear, but it eventually brings destruction, just like these thorns that are burned in the fire as it heats the pot. The song of the fools can be really subtle. Uh, it, can, it can be the song that encourages us just to live for today with, with no consequence of tomorrow because there's enjoyment to be had. I, I'm really cynical, i just just let you know. And it tends to make me a little bit of a smart aleck, but yeah, nobody say amen on that. But, but I tend to be pretty cynical, mostly about advertising. When I watch television, it drives me crazy. 
Because when I watch commercials, I try to figure out, now, what's the real message? And I read all the fine print. Pausing it sometimes to go back and read the fine print just to find out what exactly they're trying to say because I don't buy it, you know, all right? Now, some of you are not driven crazy by that. My, I'm a little bit off, but, but I watch commercials. There's one commercial right now that speaks to this kind of thing, this song of the fools, and it's a Pepsi commercial. Now, if anybody works for Pepsi Mid-America, I'm not against you. Not what I'm talking about, all right? I, if you love Pepsi and Diet Pepsi, that's fine. I'm just telling you about the commercial. And I happen to prefer Coke. But anyway, <clears throat> but Pepsi, Pepsi has commercials out now that says that the, what their main message is live for now. Now, that can be a pretty good message. You say, all right, I'm going to make the most of this moment. But that's not what I perceive to be their intention. It's live for now. Why? Because you'll never be young again. You might as well soak it all up, live it up, because there's nothing ahead of you. There's no consequence. What difference does it make what you do today? Just go for it. Now, again, I may be a little bit cynical, but that's the way that I perceive that message. To me, that is what he's talking about here, the song of fools. Or you can listen to the rebuke of the wise that says, yes, live for now, but not for yourself. Live for now, but live for other people now. Live for now, but live for Jesus now, not just for yourself. So imagine being that kind of person, the kind who is teachable, the kind who wants to know where you can improve in your life, the kind who has many wise people around you, and you listen to them even when it hurts. I wonder how many of us have someone in our lives that can tell us that we're stupid, can tell us, you're an idiot that's wrong, can tell us that's not the way you should do it. No. Can tell us, look, God has something better for you. Stop doing what you're doing. I wonder how many of us have those people in our lives and, and how many of us, if we do, are humble and godly enough to receive that kind of instruction. Or how many of us just want our friends around us to tell us, eh, it doesn't matter, just do what you want to do. Let's go have some fun. Who cares? That person is a little bit hard on you anyway. Don't listen to them. I wonder which voice we're listening to. He says it's better to listen to rebuke from a wise person than to listen and follow the song of the fools. Great wisdom, great advice for wise living. Then he goes on, verse 7. Surely the practice of extortion turns a wise person into a fool and a bribe destroys the mind. So here he says, after advising us to be surrounded with wise people so that we can become wise, the teacher gives us a caution that the wise person can actually now become a fool. This person can again become a fool if he compromises his integrity for the sake of advancement and profit. Now before we dismiss that and say, well, I'm not, I don't compromise my integrity, this is a huge temptation. This is a huge temptation. I would say especially for people who are probably in a stage of life where you're trying to build a career or make a future for yourself, this is a great temptation. You can be a very wise person and yet turn out to be a fool if you compromise your integrity. He talks about extortion and bribery for the sake of advancement and profit. This is the person who takes shortcuts. This is the person who doesn't care who they have to step on or skirt around to get to where they need to be. Now, I'm not accusing anybody in here, but let me tell you, that is a difficult thing because we all face that temptation, especially if you're on the rise in whatever organization you may be in, especially if you're trying to plan for the future and you've got to take care of yours. This person joins the rat race of material pursuit. He leaves the 
the way of the wise and now joins the path of the fools. If he's bent on doing whatever he has to do, whatever it takes to get ahead, he leaves the path of wisdom and is now on the path of foolishness. So imagine being the kind of person who says, I I see the great temptation. I see the great potential to become a fool by taking shortcuts, and I'm not going to do it. I won't compromise my integrity. I won't chase after things that don't last. I won't run over others to get in the lead. Imagine raising these kinds of children whose integrity matters more to them than their pocketbook, who who don't care necessarily what people think about them as long as they are seen as a godly person who loves the Lord Jesus Christ, who aren't concerned with having all kinds of stuff if it means in the process that they've lost their soul. Imagine being that kind of person and raising those kinds of children. And he goes on in verse 8 and 9. He says, The end of a matter is better than its beginning. A patient spirit is better than a proud spirit. Don't let your spirit rush to be angry, for anger abides in the heart of fools. He continues building on, here's what wise living looks like. Now you think about this, and you probably have noticed, and I could probably get you pretty riled up if I wanted to, but I won't. How could I do that? If we start talking about the election this year, I could get you really riled up. I get both sides going. I know, I know the, the hot button issues on both sides. I just get you going. I just stand back. Well, I wouldn't stand back and laugh, you know, outwardly, but you know, sort of on the inside. Our country is never angrier than during an election year. Both sides rail against each other. People in the parties they yell and scream back and forth. They accuse one side of lying, the other side of lying. They go back and forth. Each side's destroying the country according to whoever you listen to, and we can easily get caught up in it. And you may be caught up in it right now. You may be already getting angry. Now, hold on. What's he trying to say? You may be caught up in it. We can look around and we can get very angry. We can get cynical. We can get hopeless even about the way things are in our world today. The direction of the country or certain issues you're particularly passionate about. Whatever it may be. But the teacher advises here against being a reactionary who lets his or her anger be in control. Look at what it says again. Don't let your spirit rush to be angry, for anger abides in the heart of fools. Why? Because the end of a matter is better than its beginning. You need perspective. You've got to understand and let things play out just a little bit, he says, in whatever issue that you may be dealing with, not just politics, but just any issue you may be dealing with. So he advises being a person who responds with wisdom rather than one who reacts in anger or despair or cynicism. So what we see advised against in verse 7, this extortion, this bribery, this wrongdoing, this, this, all this oppression, he says you've got a choice to make. As you look around and you see what's wrong with the world, you've got a choice to make. You can respond with anger. You can, you can react with just off-the-cuff comments. Or you can take it to heart and use godly wisdom, how should I respond? Not how should I react, but how should I respond? Things that now cause anger and despair, he says, the end of the matter is better than its beginning, eventually they'll be used as part of God's plan for the world. Even the stuff that makes you angry. And in the meantime, we've got to be wise in how we respond to the issues that make us angry. Is there such a thing as righteous anger? Absolutely. But we must be very careful not to react and instead to respond. So imagine being the kind of person that doesn't fly off the handle at every little issue, that just doesn't wear your anger on your sleeve, that's not cynical and hopeless about the world, but instead you respond with boldness and with grace and with wisdom and with patience to those who make you angry, to the situations that make you cynical, to the 
through the things that bring you hopelessness. Imagine being self-controlled. I'll tell you this, this is the kind of person you want to listen to. You find somebody who responds to life instead of reacting to it, that's the kind of person to hang around. That's the kind of person to sit down and say, now tell me how you've gotten there. You all, all these things are happening, and you simply with wisdom just respond in a very calculated manner. How have you gotten there? That's the kind of person to be around. And then he says in verse 10, <laughs> talking about how maybe things make you wish for this, verse 10, don't say, why were the former days better than these? For it is not wise of you to ask this. The teacher tells us to the person who longs for the good old days. Things are so awful, I'm just angry at it, it's hopeless, I'm cynical, I just, let's go back to the good old days. There's a song by Rascal Flatts, I Miss Mayberry. Sitting on the porch drinking ice cold cherry coke, where everything was black and white. Picking on my sixth string, people pass by and you call them by their first name, watching the clouds roll by. You listen to that song, I'm telling you what, you just, the good old days, they just get better and better and better. There are some things about the good old days that were good. But the teacher says here, it's unwise to wish they were here or wish we could go back. Because there's some problems with wishing for the good old days. First of all, they weren't that good to begin with. Now, you know, now you, how old are you? You know, we're, you know now, all right. Well, let's go back. I figure that we've got folks in here born anywhere from the 20s up into the 2000s. The 1920s saw Wall Street corruption and organized crime. The 1930s, the Great Depression. The 40s, World War II. The 50s, Korean conflict, Jim Crow laws, and the KKK. In the 60s, you had free love, social moral revolution, the assassinations of JFK, Martin Luther King, and Robert Kennedy. In, in the 70s, you got the legalization of abortion, Watergate, inflation, and a poor economy. In the 80s, you got the beginning of the technology age, which is what we now see, MTV and the arms race with the Soviets. In the 90s, you had the Internet, which is, spreads the potential sinfulness of our world like never before, and the worst thing in the 1990s, the cancellation of the 1994 World Series. Awful. <laughs> in the 2000s, you've got 9-11, you've got economic disaster, two wars, and our country becoming further and further divided. Where are the good old days? Now, I say that with some amount of cynicism and a little smart aleck tone in my voice, but let's think about it. Were the good old days really, really that good? Now, some things were. But the problem is that we forget that those eras and, and decades had their issues as well. We say, oh, this is so awful today, and we long for some other time forgetting that it wasn't that good after all. Another problem with longing for the good old days is that it keeps us from doing what we should do now. We're constantly thinking about, well, I wish we could go back. I wish things were the way they used to be. And what do we do? We do nothing. We don't think about today. We don't act on today. We don't take advantage of today's opportunities. If we're so bent on returning to the past, on nostalgia, then we can't wisely address the issues that we currently face in your life, in our church, in our community, whatever it may be. And we forget the blessings God has brought us today. Constantly wishing for another time. Longing for the good old days also keeps us from seeing what could be possible in the future. We lose our vision. We forget that God is still in control, and He still has a plan, something great in store for those who trust Him. So when things get tough, though it's easy to long for the good old days, I want to challenge you, based upon the words of the teacher and in all of Scripture, instead of longing for some other time, trust God now and for your future. Trust God now and for your future. So imagine being the kind of person who learns from the past. Absolutely. I was a history major. I love it. 
learn from the past, but navigate the present with wisdom, and don't be afraid of the future. Because God, the God of the past, is the God of the present and also is the God of the future. Imagine being the kind of church that says, you know what, we are here in this time, in this location, for a reason. And I wonder, are we willing to be used by God as a church now and in the future, more so than just longing for days gone by? And he says in verses 11 and 12, Wisdom is as good as an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection as money is protection, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of its owner. So after telling us not to long for the good old days, he now tells us here's what's going to help you as you navigate the present and the future. It's wisdom. Both money and wisdom provide some protection, he says. But wisdom is more valuable because it can preserve your life. Wealth without wisdom is useless. It'll be squandered. But wisdom, even without wealth, still has great value. Wisdom here is good sense, the ability to judge correctly, being strong, steadfast in your mind. And it provides true profit, true advantage in life. Wise decisions help avoid the foolishness that can keep you from destroying your life or bringing it to a premature end. So imagine being the kind of person who makes wise decisions, not self-destructive ones, whose attitudes and relationships are built on wise living, pursuing that as your great inheritance. Imagine raising the kind of children who live wisely even when you're not sitting there telling them to. The solid advice, the advice that we get from the teacher is this. Living wisely brings a good reputation, perspective on life, vision for the future, and protection from self-destruction. Living wisely does all of that. Now here's our sinful tendency. We see that and we see all of this stuff and our sinful tendency is to try to accomplish wise living on our own. To be self-sufficient. To say, I'll just learn from life and I'll figure this thing out. But the problem with self-sufficiency is found in the final two verses. And this is where human wisdom meets its limitations. Verses 13 and 14. Consider the work of God. For who can straighten what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider, without question, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man cannot discover anything that will come after him. You realize God brings both prosperity and adversity into our lives? There are times when it is God himself who has sent prosperity, and times when God himself has sent a situation into your life to see who you will trust. I don't buy the lie that God will never give you more than you can handle. Because there are times, many times, when God will give you much more than you can possibly handle. To show you your limitation, to recognize in you the need to trust God, and only He can handle that situation, not you. The sinful tendency is for us to think, well, if I'm just a wise enough person, everything will be okay. But you have to realize, according to verses 13 and 14, that we are not in ultimate control, that God is. And to believe otherwise is to make yourself a God, which is idolatry. We cannot undo, it says, what He does. And this is not about moral crookedness. God's not doing things that are sinful. But it's about the shape of things and events that we might find a little awkward. <laughs> Wait a minute. I don't know what to do with that. I'm not sure I would have done it that way. This isn't about fatalism or giving up, but about accepting what comes from the hand of God and learning in the process to trust Him. 
Well, you, can, you can live as wisely as possible. But it says in verse 14 that man cannot discover anything that comes after him. You have no idea what will happen when you leave this building. You have no idea what will happen tomorrow or the next day. We have no idea. We've got, we got a plan. We've we got, a, we got a, a certain schedule that we're going to think we'll meet, but we have no idea, it says. No matter how wise we get, we can never lose the need to live by faith in the Lord. Never. We're going to experience blessings, and we should enjoy them. But we're also going to have adversity, and sometimes adversity when we least expect it. And the teacher says this should drive us to trust God more. God sends both so that we always have to trust Him. It's clear in both the Old and New Testaments that faith in the living God is required from those who are to be called His children. That faith in Jesus, whom the Father sent to pay for our sins, is required if we want to receive eternal life. And so in becoming wise and living your life, there is something that we really cannot afford to forget. Yes, living wisely is great, but the key to increasing wisdom is an increasing reverence for the Lord. The key to increasing wisdom is not just to pay attention more in life, or to read a different book, or to listen to someone talk. It's not self-help and self-sufficiency. The key to increasing wisdom is an increasing reverence for the Lord. That reverence shown in, in recognition of who He is of seeking to know Him, of true worship from a humbled heart, of obedience to His Word, of living by faith in Jesus, of trusting God completely. Imagine being that kind of person who lives wisely, not on your own strength, because that runs out, but on the strength of God Himself, who in His great wisdom, knowing we could not pay for our own sins, sent His own Son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty. The great news of the Bible. We are lost and hopeless apart from Him. But He, it says, demonstrated His own love toward us. In the midst of our sin, it says, He sent Jesus. What incredible wisdom. We can't get to Him, so He came to us. Imagine being the kind of person that just lives on that truth, reverence for the Lord, and by nature and by default, you gain greater wisdom. Imagine being that kind of spouse or parent or worker or teammate or friend or student. Imagine raising those kinds of children, having that kind of church, or living in that kind of community. This morning, I, I want us to close just with some, some directed prayer, and I'm going to direct you on just some things that maybe I think would be helpful for us to pray this morning. You don't have to pray out loud. I'm not going to call on you. If you'd like to come forward and kneel here just to get alone with God, by all means, please do. But I'd like for you, if you would, as we close, to bow your head and close your eyes and consider... As you focus in, consider what God has said to you today. The challenge has been to wise living. But not wise living in your own strength, but on that of Jesus Christ, who loved you and gave himself for you, that you might experience true life. And so as I direct you just a little bit in some prayer, maybe your prayer you would just begin with a personal reverence and say, Lord, I recognize who you are. And I place my trust in you. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for my sins and I give you my life. And I place my trust in you. Maybe you'd begin with just a, a prayer of reverence and worship. Maybe your prayer would continue and you'd say, Lord, 
As I, as I continue to reverence you, Lord, please increase my wisdom as an individual. Increase my wisdom as a spouse, as a parent, as a worker, as a friend, as a student, as a teammate, whatever it may be. Make me that kind of person. Maybe you and many of you care so deeply about this church at Elm Grove. Maybe you would pray, Lord, make us the kind of church that truly reverences you and impacts this world. Lord, make us that kind of place. We don't want to take up space. We don't want to just show up. But God, make us a place that truly worships you, a people that truly has reverence for our Lord and an impact on this world. Finally, maybe you'd pray for those who love this community and want to see it be set on fire for Jesus Christ. Maybe you'd pray that the Lord would indeed reign in our community, in Murray and Callaway County. Heavenly Father, we reverence you this morning. You are the great creator. You are our Savior. Thank you for sending Jesus to die in our place, a death we deserve, to give us what we cannot earn. Thank you for your forgiveness and eternal life. May we this morning turn in faith to you, giving you the reverence that you deserve. Make us individuals of wisdom. Make us a church, Lord, that reverences and praises you and has an impact on this world. We pray, Lord, that our community would be brought to its knees in prayer, calling on you as the one true living God. We thank you, Lord, for showing us in your word that wise living is important, but reverence for you is where it starts. So make us that kind of people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.